Proverbs chapter 5, my son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and that your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. In the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death and her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life and her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go down to the house of a foreigner. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the, the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. Because of his great folly, he is led astray. Now please move to chapter 6, verse 20. 20. My son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teachings. Bind them on your heart always and tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you wake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is lamp and the teaching is light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price... Of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can he walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold and he will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He, do, he who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes his revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Father, we uh, come to you as our authority. God, you are the creator. God, you're the sustainer. God, all that exists is from your hand, and Father, you... You created marriage, and you created husbands and wives and children and parents and all the relationships that hold us together. And so, Father, we, we desperately want to know how to do that right. Uh, we want your wisdom. We want your heart. We want your ways. And, God, we want to live in your ways and walk in your ways. And, God, we want to walk in ways that please you. And so, Father, I pray that you would keep us from, from sexual sin, keep us from adultery, keep us, Father, in, in the path of righteousness and help us, Lord. Father, we need you. We desperately need you. We pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to, to be different people today according to your word. And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. One of the very noticeable things about this, this, this book. So we're in our third uh, uh, week in the book of Proverbs. And 
One of the things that's very noticeable, these are thematic sermons. So what basically what we're doing is last week, for instance, we picked uh, child raising. We picked parenting as, as the topic. And so what we did is we went through the book of Proverbs and we pulled out, you know, different, different sections on, on fathers and sons and mothers and, and, and sons and daughters and children and parents and discipline and all kinds of things. And we kind of put that together and, and try to make our way through that. And uh, one of the things that, that becomes really, really clear when you do that sort of thing is the amount of teaching in the book of Proverbs on sex, marriage, and adultery, okay? Uh, not, not just the amount of verses, because for instance, there's a lot of verses on other topics as well. There's a lot of verses on words, on the words you speak, and uh, there's a lot of verses on money, ton of verses on money in the book of Proverbs. But one of the unique things about sex sex, uh, marriage, and adultery, is that the verses are condensed. So there really isn't another topic in the book of Proverbs that resembles that, in, in which you have basically three chapters that are primarily about this topic. So you have, you have a large kind of chunk of Scripture that is all about this issue of, of God's view of, of marriage and God's view of, of sex and God's view of sexual sin, Okay. Now, the reason that I think that should surprise you a bit is because, uh, after all, the book of Proverbs is, is a father teaching his, his son uh, how to be wise. And I think what you're going to find is that in most households, this topic is not a predominant topic, okay? This topic is not um, found a lot in the teaching of Christian households. So, so you have here an inspired book of the Bible of a father to a son, and you have a large section devoted to marriage. You have a large section devoted to adultery, okay? Now, I've not done any polls. And, and in fact, if I do do polls, most of the time that I'm just joking. Um, I, I, I'm real skeptical of polls, aren't you, of statistics. I don't know why I am. I, I just feel like depending on how you ask the question, you usually get the, the answer you want. And um, so if you hear me quoting a poll, not so much from the pulpit, but like if I'm at the gym or, you know, out with my buddies, um, don't, don't give it much thought because I'm probably just making it up. Um, th- this week I was at the gym and the guy I lived with, he's a real health nut. And so like every once in a while, I did this like four or five times this week, I'd be like, you know, I saw a poll and 89% of the people that ate Twinkies and Diet Coke before they came to work out felt like they were stronger, you know? And uh, I'm just I'm just making it up. I just I, that's the way I feel. So you know. In, anyway, I'm I'm making. But so what I'm telling you is I have no statistical information on this. Okay. But what I have done is in 20 years of doing Man Up, uh, when we hit this topic, I've I've many times asked the guys in the room, how many of you felt like that you got really clear instruction on sex, marriage, and adultery from your parents, and hardly any did, okay? So I'm just going on that. So I don't have any, I haven't done any great study on this, okay? I could be completely wrong with this next generation, the next generation of young parents, maybe doing a fantastic job of that. But I'm just telling you, my experience with guys in Man Up, where I've talked about this, is most guys said, man, we had hardly any instruction in that area. And so it's interesting to me that the book of the Bible that talks to us about training our children has a bunch of instruction, and most Christian households have hardly any. Isn't that, isn't that kind of interesting to you? That's interesting to me. Uh, and and so, so at the same time, I want you to combine that with the reality that the world talks about this endlessly, all right? So do you, do you see why that troubles me a little bit? If, if I'm right, and if Christian households are not talking about it, and they're not actually teaching what the Bible says about marriage, and about sex, and about adultery, and then you have the world that can't stop talking about it. Yesterday, I opened up my email, and I was going through just deleting a bunch of emails, and, and I happened to stop on this one because of the symbol that had on it. It was from Eddie Bauer. Eddie Bauer makes uh, clothes. They make hiking boots and 
and outdoor clothing. And they send me an email. And in the email, they, they talk about how they're promoting all this sexual deviancy. All these things that the Bible specifically says will lead you to hell. And Eddie Bauer is saying, hey, we just want you to know we celebrate this. I thought, why does Eddie Bauer care about what I think about this? Like, aren't they selling hiking shoes? But here, here's, what the, here's what the reality is, is that the, that the world talks about this constantly. And they don't talk about it in ways of truth. Okay, so, so what you have is the world promoting uh, sex, marriage, and, and adultery in ways that are twisted and are distorted and are erroneous and untrue and invalid. And, 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 and they, they, they talk about it in every sitcom, in every movie, every Facebook advertisement, Instagram photo, and tweet. And the saints seem to not know how to talk about it. And the world can't stop talking about it. And I think what that leads to is a society in which sexual morality and adultery and homosexuality and transgenderism and pornography and uh, all kinds of sexual deviancy are in our society to the full. Um, there's things I don't even know what they were. In that Eddie Bauer uh, email, there was a word. I don't know if it was a misprint or if they actually meant it, but I had no idea what it meant. You know, they were describing all the things they celebrated, and they had this one word. And I thought, well, either they made a misprint there, or I don't even know. That's something new. You know, I try to keep up with this sort of stuff, and that's something new. And, and, and it's it's filtering throughout our society, and I'd like to know why. I'd like to know. Why do we as Christians struggle to build a solid foundation of truth in this area, okay? Now, 89% of the time, see, I'm doing it right here, okay? I just made this up. 89% of the time that I ask a rhetorical question from the pulpit, the answer is usually unbelief, okay? So if you'll just like train yourself to answer that, you know, if I'll answer, ask some question, you'll be like, unbelief! You know, half the time you'll be right, okay? So, so why, why do we have a hard time with this? unbelief that that i honestly think that's the root of it i honestly think we have a hard time with this because i think there's a lot of christians who don't actually believe what the bible says about marriage i i I, not that we would like take a verse and say i don't believe that verse I, i don't know that there's a lot of christians doing that but there's a lot of christians and in the way they live and interact it does not seem like they believe what the bible says about marriage it didn't seem like they believed that that the Bible describes very clearly that marriage is this glorious picture of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, okay? And, and that sex, okay? Here, see, here's the thing. I think a lot of believers kind of try to, if we do believe it, it's kind of one of those deals where we're like, we're going to believe it, we're going to hide from it, you know? We'll, we'll say it behind the piano. Uh, that sex in the Bible, sex is supposed to be this picture of the future joys and delights and ecstasies of God and his people. Like, like, the Bible says it over and over again. You read your Old Testament. This is not just New Testament stuff. It's Old Testament. Old Testament prophets. When the Old Testament prophets would preach, they would most generally, at some point in the sermon, use an analogy of, of marriage, sex, or adultery for the picture of God's relationship with his people. If it happens in Isaiah. It happens in Jeremiah. It happens in Ezekiel. Some of them are graphic pictures. Like You'd have a hard time reading these things to your kids, and yet they're in the Bible. And you have chapters of it here in Proverbs. You have this description of marital love. You have, you, have the guy, you have this guy telling us to be drunk in romantic love for your wife. You know How about that? What did you learn at church today? Be drunk in love for my wife. That's what I learned at church. That's exactly what the Bible says. You have an entire book of the Bible, Song of Solomon, that is this metaphor of sexual love, married love, within the confines of the marriage relationship that points to this infinite relationship that God desires to have with his people. And then I meet Christians, I meet Christians who say they believe the Bible, and they will tell me things like, I think sex is dirty. I'm like, who told you that, Eddie Bauer? 
Did they ever tell you that? They sent me an email too, you know. I don't like what they said either, but you didn't get that from the Bible. So I think sometimes we don't actually believe what the Bible says about marriage. You, you know, that kind of works both ways. Okay, so you know what I find? I find some people that when they think about their relationship with Jesus, they, they, here's what they picture. They, they, they picture this, this God who doesn't really like them, you know, but it's kind of trapped into accepting them into his kingdom. And so they kind of walk around always feeling condemned and always feeling like God's disappointed with them, always feeling like he's, you know, just up there shaking his head saying, man, I just can't wait to get rid of these guys. If I could find a way to get rid of them, I would. I'm not kidding. That's the way a lot of people think of their relationship with Jesus. And you know what's interesting? A lot of those same people have that same view of marriage. They, they walk around with those same feelings. About, you know, they, they, you know, I just kind of wait. I wish I could get rid of them, and they wish they'd get rid of me. We're kind of trapped in this situation, so we just kind of get it out. I'm like, that's sad. Because that's not the picture the Bible gives of either of those. That's not the picture the Bible gives of, of, of God's relationship with us. Man, it's this bride adorned for her, for her husband. And God delighting in us. God sending his own son to, to marry a filthy bride and then make her beautiful. And there's a passage in, in Ezekiel that's just, it's just fascinating. It's beautiful about how God redeems his bride. So I think, first of all, you've got to believe what the Bible says about marriage and sex. And second of all, you've got to believe what the Bible says about sexual morality and adultery. Okay, so on the other hand, I, I think a lot of people don't, don't believe really the beautiful picture of marriage that we find in the Bible. But on the other side, I think a lot of folks don't actually believe that sexual morality and adultery are as bad as the Bible says. So, so you have this terrible scenario of you don't, we don't believe that, that marriage is as good and we don't believe that adultery is as bad. And I know part of it is just that it's everywhere around us, right? It's people we know, it's people we love, it's our family that have fallen into this. And, and so, so we almost want to kind of bring it down a little bit. But the Bible says it is horrific in the damage that it does to people's soul. First Corinthians chapter 6, like, like you just can't get around the, the devastation of this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived? Neither the sexual immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. All those things dealt with, with sex. Nor, and then some other topics here, thieves or greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. But all this is in the context of the gospel, okay? Because the next verse says, and such were, were is a great word, W-E-R-E, were. In other words, you're not that anymore. Some of, some of you were that, but you were, here's the beauty of the gospel, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there's absolutely forgiveness of sin and, and transformation of lives, but the Bible is clear that you cannot live in sexual sin, in habitual sexual sin, in unrepentant sexual sin, and be right with God. It just does not happen. And so we need to believe that. We need to believe what the Bible says about these things. We need to believe that, that marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant. You remember the, the covenant that God made with Abraham? You know, it's, it's a really interesting story. They take a bunch of animals and they kill them. They chop them in half. It's kind of brutal. They chop these animals in half and they, they lay the, the half of the bloody carcass here and half the bloody carcass here. And then, then Abraham, they walk through. They walk. It's this covenant ceremony. And basically the, the, the picture there is if I break my end of the covenant, may that happen to me. Like, like it's, a, it's a future. It, it's like we know things are going to get hard. We know things are going to get tough. We know things are going to get difficult. And so I'm making this covenant in how I'm going to act when they do. I'm not going to break my covenant. 
I love what Tim Keller says about marriage. Tim Keller says marriage has nothing to do with how you feel on the wedding day. It has everything to do with how you are promising to feel in the future. Isn't that interesting? That's a great view of marriage. Yeah, I mean, do with on the wedding day. You can feel happy, sad, whatever. That, that's really not important, okay? What's important is what are you promising to feel in the future? And that, that's, that's what a covenant is. And marriage is a covenant. And sex is given to the marriage covenant. And, and then here's where a lot of Christians just start to fall off. We, we don't believe this. And it's commanded. Okay, it's commanded. So, so in Proverbs chapter 5, I want you to see this. This is, this is really kind of startling. And by the way, if you think I'm being too graphic, I'm way holding back. Okay, I'm, I'm holding back way from every commentary that I read. All right, I'm not going into any of the images. I'm trying to keep this as appropriate as we can. And for verse 15, he says, you need to drink water from your own sister. In other words, you have this appetite, this thirst that God has put in you, and, and you, you, need to, you, you need to be with your wife, okay? Um, the, he commands delight. We're going to talk more about that in a second. He commands that you be intoxicated with, with love for your spouse. One of the greatest things in this passage is this idea, this command, not an idea, it's a command, that you should rejoice in the wife of your youth. Man, that you should delight in your spouse, that, that's an incredible concept that you should not delight in the forbidden woman. That's in verse 20, and there's this contrast here that we're going to look at in just a second. But it's, you should delight in your spouse because every other woman is a forbidden woman. Look in verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? Your, your Bible may say adulteress or stranger or something like that. that. That's literally what it is, is a stranger. In other words, ladies, you have to understand this about marriage. I feel like some guys get this, not all guys get this, but I feel like hardly any ladies get this, okay? So, so here's what that is saying to us, okay? When it says rejoice in the wife of your youth, drink from your own cistern, should your streams be scattered abroad? Absolutely not, but rather you should rejoice in the wife of youth. What that, what that is saying, let me just put it in, in, in terms for me, okay? What that is saying to me is that there is one woman in this whole world and the rest of everybody is just dudes, okay? So, so for me, what this is saying is Emma Dirks is the only woman in the world, okay? She's the only woman to be delighted in. She's the only woman to be looked at. She's the only woman to be, to be uh, thought of and, and dreamed of. She's the only woman. Everybody else in the world is just a bunch of dudes, okay? Now, I know there's females in those dudes, okay? But, but they're not females in the sense that my wife is a female. Does that make sense? Like, it's like so the Bible is telling us you, you, you channel all of your thirst into this one woman, okay? You're, you're a one-woman man. That's, that's the qualification in the New Testament for a spiritual leader is that he be a one-woman type of man. In other words, there's only one. So there's no comparing. That's foolish. There's, there, there's only one to rejoice in. And I feel like a lot of ladies don't understand that because here's what I hear from a lot of married ladies in my office. They'll say things like, you know, well, you know, I don't want him to look at me. I've gained a bunch of weight and all that. I'm like, who's he supposed to look at? You know, there isn't any others. There's not any others. It's just a bunch of guys, you know, and a bunch of females that, that are sisters in Christ or potential believers to share the gospel with. It's kind of like this. I want you to imagine if every other ice cream except Dairy Queen gave you horrific intestinal issues, okay? So, like, I'm not talking about, like, a little tummy ache. I'm talking about, like, you went to India and ate the white stuff in gallons, all right? And you're in the hospital, and you don't know if you're going to live. I'm talking about those kind of intestinal issues, Okay? If that were the case, here's what I believe would happen. When you drive down Oklahoma Avenue and you pass Brahms, you'd be like, no, 
I mean, you just, no, 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 that's not for me. Man, that's not for me. Other people can go there, but I ain't not going there, right? You drive by Orange Leaf, you're like, that's not for me, man. I, I ain't even giving a second look, man. I don't, I don't even think about pulling in the driveway there. But when you'd go to Dairy Queen, what would you say? Dairy Queen's awesome, right? And even if it has some benches that are kind of broken down. Have you been in there? You know, you'd still say, man, this is awesome. Even though the tables look like they're from the 1950s, you know, you'd be like, this is the greatest place ever, you know. Even though the sign's almost tore down and and the inside's not painted real nice, it wouldn't matter. Because that's the ice cream you're supposed to rejoice in. That's what he's saying here. About wives. Honestly, that's what he's saying about husbands, okay? So I know a lot of you ladies think, well, man, we're left out of this deal. You're not left out of this. This is a father talking to a son. If it was a mother talking to a daughter, she'd be saying the other thing. She'd be saying, you need to rejoice in the husband of your youth, okay? Now, notice it says rejoice in the wife of your youth. That is not, a lot of middle-aged men have gotten really confused on that. It's not, it's not rejoice in a young wife. That's not what it's saying. That's wrong. That's sin. That's devastation. That's what we're talking about. It's saying rejoice in the wife of your youth. In other words, in the wife that you share this life together with from your youth. This, this is a beautiful verse. Man, you ought to memorize this. You ought to live by it, and you ought to believe it, church. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. What does that mean? Okay, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna tell you what it means for me. Okay, I'm just gonna give you a little example, and then I want you to live it out for you. Okay, I want you actually to do this this morning. Okay, so here's what it means for me. For me, it's to rejoice in the wife who gave herself to me at 19, who threw her life in with mine, the wife who followed me to Tabor College and then the Southwest Baptist University and then a Midwestern Seminary, the wife who who moved into after our honeymoon moved into the slum Rama cockroaches covered. Covering the walls, we took sheets and hung them on the on the windows because they had no curtains. You could see through the wall. There was a druggie in the next room. There's a lady eating out of the garbage can behind our window, and she moved in there and said, "We're home." That's the wife of my youth. The wife of my youth is the wife who jumped into ministry with me, who went to SMSU on Friday nights with me to learn how to share the gospel with lost people. We went to gospel ministry. We started pastoring churches. She bore my children. She endured countless hardships and difficulties and health problems in order to give me six awesome kids. This is the wife who grieved over the children we lost in miscarriage. This is the wife who travailed for almost four years through mountainous highs and deep valleys of foster care and adoption. This is the wife who camped with me in the bottom of the Grand Canyon, Who the wife who summited 14,000 foot peaks with our teenagers just to be with them. The wife who drove that old police car we had, some of you remember, with the muffler dragging down Oklahoma Avenue and did not complain. That's the wife of my youth. And verse 20 says, how dare you, son, be intoxicated with the forbidden woman. Do you see where he's going there? He's saying the wife of your youth is the wife that you share this life with, right? That you you left mother and father and you became one with. And you have this history of beauty and blessing and hardship and and, and all that comes with life. And in that mysterious covenant of, of marriage in which God has made you one, that's where he has put the sexual relationship. That's the wife of your youth. And so verse 20 says, why should you be intoxicated with a stranger, an adulteress, 
Someone who clearly does not care about your six children. Someone who would in a heartbeat harm them forever for a few minutes of pleasure. Someone who would rip the fabric of your family apart for their own personal enjoyment. Why would you embrace, verse 20, the bosom of an adulteress who does not share your life, who is not committed to your future, one who God in his wisdom has said no? You see, that's what adultery is. Adultery is I don't want to share your life. I don't want to commit to your care or your provision. I don't want to share your tears or your fears. I don't want to share your heartaches or your health problems. I don't want to share your sorrows or your despairs. I just want you for my own immediate pleasure. And God says that is wicked. That is taking something beautiful and using it for something terrible. And that, my friends, is dishonoring to God. Married couples, I think it would be wise for you today to believe the Word of God. See, I think a lot of times we read these things and we don't actually believe them. So I think what believing them means today is that you take verse 15 and you say, okay, I'm going to, or not verse 15, what is it, 16 or 17? I'm going to rejoice in the wife of my youth. It's 18. I I think it's, you you say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to actually have joy. I'm going to cultivate joy in my spouse, in my wife, in my husband. No matter how difficult the season it is, no matter the underlying hostilities or hurts or disappointments, you need to rejoice in what you share. You rejoice in this beauty because you believe, right? You rejoice in this beauty of this one flesh marriage union that God has said is a picture of Jesus Christ and his church. Okay, so first of all, you need to believe what God says about marriage. Second of all, you need to believe what he says about adultery. Okay, now first of all, you got to believe that it's sin. Okay, no matter how lonely you feel or your friend felt or how neglected or hurt or unappreciated or unwanted you feel in your marriage, adultery is sin against God. I find Christians, Christians who say they believe in the Bible, making excuses for this, making excuses for, well, you know, they, they, were, they were neglected and they were unappreciated and they were unwanted. And I, I'm not saying that anything, any of those things are bad or I'm not saying any of those things are okay. They're not okay. They're terrible. They're sin. It's not living out God's covenant and God's picture of marriage, but they are not an excuse for adultery. And here's the deal. God sees it as sin. Notice chapter 5, verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his past. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Now, he's not talking about any sin. He's talking about sexual sin. And you know what's interesting about that verse is that, that it makes clear not only that it's sin, but we actually don't need that verse to make clear that it's sin. So, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Do you hear that? The Bible says that sexual morality, to, to live in it shows that you don't know the God of the universe. You, you, don't, you don't know God's glory. You don't know his greatness. You, you don't know him. But what, what Proverbs 5, 21 and 22 tell us is that sexual sin makes ruts in your life. Okay, now I looked up these verses in Hebrew, and, and this one is really interesting. Verse 21 says, chapter 5, verse 21, Proverbs, a man's roads, that's, that's really what it says, my Bible translates it ways, a man's ways or his roads are before the eyes of the Lord, so God's watching that, and he ponders all his, and you know what that word paths is? Literally, look it up in the Hebrew dictionary, it says wagon tracks, wagon tracks, okay? Now, have you ever been out in an old, old, pasture road where somebody's been driving their wagon or somebody's driving their tractor or somebody's been driving their pickup for a long, long time, and you have these, you know what you have, right? You have these deep ruts, okay? Now, here's what everybody knows about those. Once you get in them, it's hard to get out of them, right? 
Like, like you, you, the, you, the vehicle wants to suck into them, first of all. It wants to fall into them. But once you get into them, it's kind of hard to get out of them because they're ruts, all right? And so when it says a man's ways are before the Lord and he ponders all his paths, all his wagon tracks, he's saying he's, he ponders God, ponders God, looks at all the tracks of our life. And here's the thing. Sexual sin makes, makes ruts in your life. It makes patterns of living that are hard to get out of. Now you're saying that you got all that from that verse. Well, here's the great deal about Proverbs. Most Proverbs come in twos, okay? Not all of them, but, uh, but if, they, if they don't come in twos, they come in, the, the verse has a front part and a second part, and usually the, the second part interprets the front part, okay? So look at the next verse, all right? So verse 22 clarifies this. It says, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. You know what it is to be ensnared, right? That's to be caught in a trap. Okay, they ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. All right. So so that clarifies what he's talking about. He's saying sexual sin ensnares a person. Those wagon tracks, it makes you hard, easy to get into and hard to get out of. The cords of sin wrap around you and it's hard for you to get out of sin. And we shouldn't we shouldn't doubt that, should we? Because everywhere we look in our culture, you know what we see? We see sexual addiction, right? We see addiction to pornography, to romance novels, to movies like Fifty Shades of the Wrath of God in Hell. Uh, isn't that what that movie is called? Or, no, it's Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm, I always forget that. Um, we see that everywhere in our society. We see people who are in bondage, who are enslaved to sexual sin. Why? Because the Lord knows. He ponders our, our tracks. And once you give yourself to sexual sin, it's hard to get out of it. So second of all, we need to believe that not only is adultery sin, not only is sexual immorality sin, but there are sure and certain consequences to sexual sin. The Bible says this all over, but let me pick a really, really poignant passage for it. Chapter 6, verse 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? I'd love to see one of you try that this afternoon. Go build you a little campfire and then get it, get it blazing, get those coals hot, and then scoop that dude up into your chest and try to carry it about 10 yards and put it somewhere else and see what happens. Can you do that without getting your clothes burnt? The answer is no, okay? Verse, next verse, verse 28. Can you one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Try that one out. Verse 29, so it is, so he, he who goes into his neighbor's wife, none who touches her will go unpunished. Okay? None who touches her will go unpunished. You, you cannot get away with sexual sin without consequences on your life. Now, some of you are saying, well, what about the gospel? This, Hold these both up, okay? You hold them both up. So on the one hand, Romans 8, 1 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We believe that, don't we? We believe that God forgives. We believe that if we turn from our sin, if we repent, we put our faith in Jesus, we can be joined to his, his righteousness and his righteousness will flow into our account and we can be forgiven. We believe that. But what Proverbs is teaching us is also true and that's that that. Sexual sin has consequences upon a person's life. I remember my pastor explaining this right after I became a Christian. And it's, it's funny how certain things will just stick with you your whole life. And I remember, I don't remember what the sermon was, but I remember his illustration. And this was his illustration. He said this. He said, if you go out and you get drunk and you're just out of your mind, you know, intoxicated with alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, and then you're, you made an idol of it and you're driving down a road 90 mile an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone and you veer off the road in this curve and hit a tree and there's this horrible car accident and you get your arm severed off as you go through the windshield. They get you to the hospital and they patch you up and you're alive and you wake up and you're like, Lord, why did I do that? That was horrible. That was sin. That was terrible. I repent. 
Jesus. I repent and I put my faith in you and I don't want to do that anymore and I want to follow you and God, I want you to give me power through your Holy Spirit to never live that way again. Can you be forgiven? Absolutely, you can be forgiven. But if you're in that wreck and you sever it off your arm, once you're forgiven, does your arm grow back? It does not normally. Now, could God do that? He absolutely could. I believe he could. But normally what happens, you live the rest of your life with the consequence of your sin. In the same way, sexual sin leaves a mark on your life. It has consequences, real consequences on your life. You know, one time in Man Up, and I've done this, every, every time I preach on this passage, I've done this ever since because it was so meaningful to me. I don't know if it was meaningful to any of the guys, but it was super meaningful to me. And what I did was I had a whiteboard that I got up here and I had a marker and I said, all right, guys, we're going to talk about what would be the consequences of sin? What would be the consequences of adultery? If, 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 if one of us committed adultery, what would be the consequences? But I said, all right, guys, I want you to hold up. Before you write down, in your own life, what would be the consequences? I want us to talk about me. So let's just use me as an example first. And so, so all the guys started chiming in. We said, all right, if, if Pastor Jason ha- commits adultery on his wife and it ends in maybe the destruction of our marriage, what would be the consequences upon my life? Let's say I repent and I'm forgiven and, and, and I turn away from sin and I'm right before the Lord now, but what would be the consequences? We started writing those down. We started writing down all the consequences on my spiritual life, my fellowship with the Lord, my discipleship relationship with other guys, my ministry in this church that would probably most likely be over. It would be over. Um, I would resign. I would go into a different career, something like that. Uh, and we started writing all those down. But I remember some of them that just gripped my hearts were, were the fact that my, my daughter's weddings would be different, you know, that they would be different. They would, they would still probably get married and they would be a happy occasion, but it would be different. Like, like that wedding would be different. And I remember thinking about how every Christmas would be different and how my relation with my sons and my relation with my daughters and the consequences on their lives and, and what it would mean for my little three in their formative years for me not to be there in the house with their mother and the financial consequences and the consequences on the church and the staff and the ministry. And one of the ones that I'd never thought of that really gripped me was how my funeral would be different. Now, hopefully there'd still be some folks show up and say nice things about me and be sad, but it would be different. Like the funeral would be different than it would have because of the consequences of sin on my life. Sin has consequences. So what should we believe about adultery? Well, that it's sin, that it has consequences, and, and thirdly, that you, you can never make it right. Okay, now I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's worth you seeing here. Look in chapter 6. Um, beginning in verse 30, okay? This is really wise for Solomon to teach his son this. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, if he's caught, what's going to happen? He's going to pay sevenfold. He'll give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery, though, lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. Listen to this. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. All right, do you see the comparison there? If, you're out, if there's a thief out there right now, imagine this. He's out there right now, and he's scoping around vehicles. He's walking around all you guys' vehicles. He sees my white Toyota Yaris been hit three times for my, by my girl's cracked windshield. He's like, that's the car I'm going to steal. You know, He jumps in it right now and takes off on, with my little Toyota Yaris. He joy rides and drives the thing 150 miles. I don't know if it go that fast, but 150 miles an hour. You know, Loses control, rolls the thing, ditch. Police are there. They arrest him for a stolen vehicle. He goes to jail. We go before the judge. Judge sends him and says, 
you're guilty. He says he's sorry. Let's say I forgive him. And then he has to pay restitution to me. And let's just say this. Let's say he does exactly what the book of Proverbs says. He, he pays sevenfold, all right? So instead of giving me a new Toyota Yaris, he gives seven times that. You know what? He gives me a new BMW, all right? If he gives me a new BMW, we're square, man. Like, it's, it's all good. It's all good, isn't it? Like, it is. Like I, like, I still think he's a thief, and I don't trust him, but we're okay. Like, hey, you don't owe me anything. You know, you, you gave me a new BMW, and, and we're square, Okay. So he compares that to the man who commits adultery. If the man commits adultery and then repents and he's sorry and he he's cries over it and, and, and gets forgiveness from the Lord and, and says he'll never do it again. Okay, but how's he going to fix that? What are you going to pay? What are you going to pay to that, that spouse? What are you going to pay to their children? What are you going to pay to their parents? What are you going to pay to make that right? You can't ever make it right. That, that's, that's what he's saying here. That's what he's teaching. His son, they're... There, 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 are, there are consequences to sin, and there are some things that, that you can do that you can't ever make right. So, in the four minutes we have left, let's look at some wisdom here. Man, it just gets shorter and shorter. First of all, in this passage, he's teaching us to look to the end, okay? So here, here's, here's a, a wise way of thinking about this. Look to the end, okay? Now, look at... Look at chapter 5, verse 3, okay? Chapter 5, verse 3 says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But verse 4 says, but in the end, okay? So you always have to look to the end. Now, why this is so important is, is because I think a lot of us forget that sin will always come to us as honey. I mean, the devil is really good at this, okay? The demons are really good at this. The flesh is really good at this. Sin will always come to you as honey. It will always present itself as honey. And I really think a lot of people are not expecting that, and they should be expecting that because the Bible says that over and over again. When sin approaches, it's going to look like honey. You see, there's a lot of people that, that, that just have this idea that sex is bad and immorality is bad and adultery is bad and I would never, ever do that. And then... And then it presents itself in a way that they never thought of. I, I find that ladies fall into this more than guys even. That's just my 89%. I'm just, making, I'm just giving you my experience, okay? I don't, I don't know that this is, this is true across the board, but I'm giving you my experience that ladies often fall into this. I, I've, I've had ladies that thought they would never, ever do something this horrible. And yet, you know what they tell me when they're unpacking it? He was so charming. He was so trying, and he was so kind. That's the kindest man I've ever met. My husband's a harsh man. This, this man was so kind, and he was so encouraging, and he was so gentle with me. And then I'm always waiting for this one. It blows me away that it comes so often. He was such a spiritual man. Huh? Like I've done that like multiple times. Am I, huh? It's crazy. I've, I've had ladies tell me, yeah, we prayed together. Um, that, that is not new. That is in this book. It's going to come like honey. And you got to know that. You got to know that it's going to present itself like everything's right. When everything is wrong. So you got you to learn to look to the end. Look at this, chapter 7. How does this gal come to this guy? Uh, verse 10. 
Behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute. While of heart, she's loud and wayward. Her feet don't stay at home. And now in the street, now in the market, in every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices. Today, I've paid my vows. You know what that says? I've been to church today. Where do you offer sacrifices? At the temple. I've been to church. I paid my vows. I've got a feast. That when you offer sacrifice, you had a feast. I've got a feast waiting at home. Okay? Verse, verse 15. I've come out to meet you. I seek you eagerly and I've found you. I've spread my couch with coverings. This is beautiful here. Colored linens from Egyptian linen. I perfume my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come and let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. She paints this picture that is HGTV. Beautiful, wonderful, pleasurable. Nothing but honey here. But you got to look to the end. So go back to chapter 5, verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. It looks like honey, but it's bitter. Chapter 7. It looks like the epitome of pleasure. But skip to the end. Verse 22. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Look to the end. Number two. Learn to put distance between you and temptation. One of the wise things that this father does is he teaches his son, you... You can't get close, son. You can't get close. Chapter 5, verse 8. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Man, that, that, is, that is wise. Don't, don't go near it. Don't go near it. You see, here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that most people don't know they've decided to fall into sexual sin until they've already fallen into it. Okay? I, I really believe this. I believe most people think the line is here, right here. Here's the line where I fall into sexual sin. That's not where the line is. That's not where the line is. The line is actually back here because, because the thing that we underestimate is we underestimate the power of sinful desire. So, so for instance, look at verse 25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. That's the funniest verse in this chapter to me. How do you get captured by somebody's eyelashes? I know the big thing now is those extensions, you know, and then you grow them long and they got that lash fertilizer. Have you guys seen that? You put that stuff on and it grows them, you know, real long, gives them fertilizer. I think it's some kind of manure maybe. I'm not sure, but it's fertilizer. You know, makes them grow real long and, and, and you got the extensions, okay? Now, how in the world, you know, is he saying you get close enough, you know, you're looking at it, it grabs you and you can't get away, you know? captures you with it. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, if you allow yourself to desire what you should not desire, if you allow yourself looks and conversation and glances that you should not desire, you get captured. Captured is a serious word there, isn't it? Here's what happens. A lot of people think, I won't, I, won't, I won't fall into sin till right here. So you know what I can do? I can enjoy all this stuff until I just get right up to the line. You are fooling yourself. Once you allow desire to form in your heart, the hook is set. 
And apart from the grace of God, you're going to fall. That's what he's teaching the son. He's teaching the son, you, you got to stop these things in your heart. Don't desire her beauty. Don't be captured by his slick words, by his charm. Don't let your heart be drawn away. See, this is all really about the heart. Isn't it interesting? And I, I'll be done, I'll be done, I'll be done. Isn't it interesting? I got to get on a plane too. Interesting that, that he's saying you need to desire your spouse. <laughs> he's saying fuel that thing. Delight, be intoxicated, right? So there, there's where desire is supposed to be. And then he's saying, and don't even let your heart go this other direction. And then if you bring in the whole Bible, you know what he says? And cultivate desire for God above all else. You see, it's, it's all about what you desire. That's why, in, in, and I wish we had time to talk about this, but in the Beatitudes, you know what he says? Blessed are those who, what? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And blessed are those who cultivate, who believe the, what the Bible says about Jesus, and who cultivate a deep desire for him. You see, when your desires are right, your life's going to be right. Let's pray.